Welcome to this episode of Nuance, a podcast that encourages Christ followers to live faithfully at work, especially in regard to the hot topics of the public square. This season, we're exploring the ever-growing issue of gender identity. As Christ followers, we have to do better and be better, while confidently knowing that the gospel speaks to our most difficult conversations. My name is Case Thorpe. On behalf of my co-host, Crossland Stewart, and myself, welcome to Nuance. Well, friends, welcome to today's episode of Nuance, and I am just thrilled to have our guest today, a, a man whom I greatly respect and appreciate his writing and his speaking and his thought leadership in so many different ways related to our culture. And so today, I'm thankful to have Stephen Garber. Stephen, thank you for being with us. It's a gift to be with you all there. Mm. And of course, Crossland, welcome and glad you're here with me again today. Me too. Let's keep doing this. So Stephen Garber is the Senior Fellow for Vocation and the Common Good at the Murdoch Charitable Trust. He has taught many people in many places. He was the Professor of Marketplace Theology at Regent College, uh, directed their Master's in Leadership, Theology, and Society. He's authored numerous books, um, Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good is one of my favorites, and uh, most recently released The Seamless Life, A Tapestry of Love, Learning, Worship, and Work. Uh, Stephen founded the Wedgwood Circle and was principal of, at the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture. And um, Stephen, I have to kick right off and let you know, Visions of Vocation. My goodness, I teach this to our Gotham fellows, our Orlando fellows, and what I tell them, and as I say, y'all, this book is warm brown sugar, warm brown sugar, and I rub my cheek, and I purposely play it up, and they make fun of me now, but I say, get ready, because we are about to be enveloped in this beautiful experience of story and theology and challenge. Mm, it's just like warm brown sugar. <laughs> so thank you for your warm brown sugar. You might have to be from Orlando to get all of that. Please. <laughs> <laughs> At least the South. <laughs> That's right. I was speaking generously. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being here, uh, Stephen. We really appreciate the opportunity. And we would love our audience to get to know you a little bit better. And so could you tell us how you got interested in particular in this idea of faith and work and, um, and how to help people integrate that better and understand it more fully? It's such a good question, Crossland. Um, I think that most of life is pretty autobiographical. So when you ask me that question, I think, well, I had a grandfather, I had a father, and as, uh, as must be, I watched their lives, I listened to the way they lived their lives, and my grandfather bought and sold cattle in Colorado. My father was a University of California research scientist. I didn't turn out to be either of those, occupationally speaking. But I think watching them as I grew up, I began to think that they understood actually the work of their lives as mattering to God and to the world. Mm -hmm. In the best Benedictine uh, way, when he taught his community 1,500 years ago in the hills above Rome to live a life of ora e labora, to pray and to work together, 
to pray and to work seamlessly or coherently together, not to choose one against the other as if some people should pray, some should work, but how would you actually hold a life together of praying and working of ora e labora? My father and my grandfather both did that with differences because they were different people, but they both did that with conscientiousness. And uh, I can begin to see even as a, even as a boy, you know, I can see that my grandfather's respect within his community of other cattle buyers in Colorado and his judgment being honored by them for, you know, what the cows were selling for this week in Colorado. And I knew that he, night by night, would lead us as a family on our knees in prayer. Um, mm. And for him, it was not a matter of sort of like, well, I'll be devotional here and I'll go to work over there, mm. but that it actually was held together more coherently. Um, as a 10-year-old boy, I watched. I didn't have many categories to make sense of that. My father, differently done, you know, talked to me in my adolescent years about walking off into the laboratories of his life, wanting to be a kind man and a good man, uh, as a person of honest faith should be, but actually to see into the questions of his work. So to pray to God, actually, to see in, into what he did that day how it related to what he had done the year before and the would be next, next next months and years of his life to see have wisdom and insight into the very nature of the work that was his and as he put it to me poignantly along the way the longer i look steve at the world that really is there through my microscope the more sure i am that god made this world that there's it, it's been created by god himself uh, so for me i mean i knew that you know that both my father and my grandfather thought that work mattered but they also, in some honest way, uh, prayed into the meaning of their work. So those have been, that vision of what vocation means has been pretty deep within me for a long time. Wow, what a blessing for you to have that living incarnated image that you had in both of those men. Um, that That's fabulous. What a great story. <laughs> Image and seamlessness, and I've often heard it put as congruency, to live a congruent life. And I believe, as we're discussing in this season, the gender debate and individuals that struggle with gender dysphoria and are um, bringing up this issue for our greater society, I think it, it, it runs into a, a – it's not seamless. It, it, it kind of disrupts nature, and um, that's one of the things we're struggling with particularly when Christ followers in the workplace need to be a good worker and still um, learn to coexist in the public square. So back to warm brown sugar. <laughs> one, of your, <laughs> one of your big questions is, can we know the world and still love it? Can we know the world and still love it? Can we know this incongruency, this lack of seamlessness as these issues build around us, and can we still love it? What would you say to someone in relation to this issue? How much time do we have, Case? <laughs> <laughs> you want to go for a long walk for you know several hours this afternoon? <laughs> you might need that, actually. I was driving yesterday through Charlottesville, Virginia, where a couple of our children live, and crossing a pedestrian bridge you know, where the car took me as well. I saw coming my way on the sidewalk somebody who the closer he got, the closer she got. It was obviously somebody who was stumbling over gender questions. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, by the gait of the person's walk, by the shape of the face, 
you know, clearly to me seem like that is a man walking across the bridge, but with long shoulder length hair and a skirt on and makeup on the face and thinking, oh, my first thought case was, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. You know, um, and I don't know what else to, how else to, to say that somehow, you know, I do cry out for the sorrow, for the sadness, for the confusion, for the perplexity, for the, you know, the misdirected loves, uh, which are at the heart of all of this. Um, uh, you know, I, I think in some ways our response has to be something in line with, oh, Jesus, it isn't the way you wanted this life to be, is it? Uh, and there's a, a thousand things to say beyond all that. I, thinking about your question before we are on this afternoon, I was thinking, well, you know, depends what you read day by day and where you look day by day. But, you know, most people in the Western world, at least, have been following, at least on some level, J.K. Rowling's participation into this question. Mm. The author, famously, of Harry Potter, et al., et al., et al., really, you know. And then a year or two, she decided to say something out loud, you know, about her concern about what it meant for this transgender debate to go forward into the public square. Mm-hmm. She has been vilified, you know, and yeah. it's almost, you know, it's a terrible thing to read what she reports being said about her. And yet when you go on her website, which I did this morning, just look, thinking about our question today, I thought, you know, she has a very long essay, which would be interesting for anybody just to read, you know, mm-hmm. and it's titled something like, uh, um, in my own words, J.K. Rowling writes about her re- reasons for speaking out on sex and gender issues. Uh, and, uh. It's thoughtful and it's articulate, and she's a good writer. We already knew that about her, really. But she talks about, you know, there's nothing knee-jerk in this about for her, for her at all. I mean, she actually writes in a paragraph about discussing this with this expert and this specialist and this and this and this, people who are diversely representative of people who might have thoughtful, important things to say about this question. You know, So her own thinking is not just J.K. Rowling, author of Harry Potter, but it is somebody who's trying to be a responsible citizen to think through a very, very complicated and complex question for all of us, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that essay, she says, well, even for all of the vilification that's become mine the last couple of years, I've had overwhelmingly correspondence from people who were so grateful that I've said something. And and they're not all people who might belong to some, you know, even to to the church or to people who might belong to a particular, you know, right-leaning political party. That is not her point. She's British, of course. You know, and this is set within the English society, first of all, really. Um, but she just, she has, in some way, it's a flashpoint, of course, even to have J.K. Rowling become right. like so known for, you know, what did she say about what? No, she didn't, really. You know, and not from a Christian perspective, per se. J.K. Rowling becomes a, a flashpoint for what did she say, really? Mm. Um, you know, I've got a lot of things I could say to you about all this, maybe maybe a few things, then we could talk a little bit more about where you want maybe all this to go. But I was thinking about the question of chaos or cosmos, mm-hmm. and maybe a place to begin in our conversation together. Yes. Chaos or cosmos. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the readers, we, books that I spent a lot of time reading in my life many years ago was a book by Alistair McIntyre called After Virtue. And there's a line mm-hmm. in which has been stuck in my heart ever since then. We cannot know what, who we are, what we're to do without knowing the story or stories of which we are part. Mm. So hear it again. We cannot know what we're to do without knowing the story or stories of which we are part. 
And that's a huge sentence. It's a huge idea with implications that run all over the whole universe, actually. But it has meaning for our conversation here today, too, about gender and the gendered questions that are so much at the heart of public debates right now. And I would sum back to those two words, you know, is a story a story of chaos or is a story of cosmos? You know, if there was a father to, you know, contemporary, you know, modern atheism, as we call it in the 21st century, it clearly would be a man named Frederick Nietzsche from the 19th century. Uh, and, you know, I read a lot of his work, and so it's not like a, I take in one sentence out of context. I've read mm -hmm. a lot of his, his thinking. Um, and uh, he put it like this in a surprising moment of honesty. He said, well, yes, there is no God. God is gone. Let's be honest about that. But to be honest about that, we have to begin to also realize that we can no longer speak about meaning and morality. Yeah. Yeah. So let's grow up and know that there's a price tag here. Okay, God's done with. I'm not calling for God to be brought back into the conversation about, about life in the modern world. But if we're going to say that, we need to be honest and say, well, we need to stop talking about both meaning and morality. In the chapter that one of the book you post, you held up a few minutes ago, Case, there's a chapter I call The Landscape of Our Lives. Mm -hmm. One of the two faces of that landscape of contemporary culture, I've called the culture of whatever. The yeah. culture of whatever. Yes, and more so. When you hear, you know, even my best attempt to try to describe something which I, I think is there, uh, and has, of course, it's right behind or written right through the meaning of the transgender questions right now. The culture of whatever, whatever about what, whatever I want to be, whatever I can imagine myself needing to be, you know, um, and because there are no, there's no, it's not cosmos we're talking about here. Mm. Mm. We're talking about chaos, frankly and simply said. Uh, um, and so disconnected from the meaning and the morality that the cosmos lays out for us. That would be the deeper argument and the deeper conversation to have, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that, you know, in my, you know, if the story is the big question, what is the story, you know, uh, I taught a group, a group of people kind of like your Gotham Fellows, but here in Washington, D.C. for many, many years. And uh, um, I always spend the first month talking with them about sexuality. The first month? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. my argument was this, that if we can't trust God to speak truthfully about our bodies, how do we trust him to speak truthfully about politics, mm. about the arts, about economics, the rest of life, actually? Because if he's not trustworthy to speak about things that in some ways you inhabit most knowingly, your own body, why on earth would you trust him to speak truthfully about the meaning of justice in a pluralizing society? Come on now. Why would you actually go to the biblical vision to speak meaningfully about, you know, corporate public responsibility? the nature of business in the world. You know, um, how would you make any critique of this or critique of that? Or, you know, I mean, if you didn't actually trust God to speak honestly, honestly, which means truthfully, about who you are as male and female, he made them. Why would you trust him to speak honestly about anything else in your life, actually? And so in some way, I would say that for the first month, the students were typically surprised because they would say something like, you know, we talk about this stuff all the time. We just don't ever talk about it in places like this, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and my argument was, well, you know, you're going to have to begin to think beyond sex 
and to move towards a more thoughtful account of sexuality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the gender debate, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it moves what we've talked about for 25, 50 years in sexuality now to uh, anthropology or to what is a human. And those categories get challenged. And so then we show up at work and we're confronted with this. And I'm reminded, can I know the world and love it? Do I have to know the world and fight it, react against it, uh, be afraid of it? But can I love even if I don't like, don't understand? You can see, Case and Crossland, why in the writing of the book, I made the argument that that question is never, ever, ever a sort of <laughs> theoretical question. In my mind, right. it's actually the hardest of all the questions we have to answer in this life. There's no question more difficult than that question. Um, and, you know, we've named one issue today, gender and cross-gender and transgender in a perplexity. Uh, but you could step back away from that and say, well, what about this and this and this, really? And when you begin to enter into the public square, to the public life of the world, yes. You know, or even to, uh, kind of to, to zero in on something, when you begin to actually get to know your wife or your husband. <laughs> and you think, well, you know, I've often said to people who say, what are you asking? I say, well, does your wife actually love you now that she knows you? Oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> um, they think, well, of course you should see what I'm saying now. Because I would say that sons of Adam, daughters of Eve that we are, born of that strangely named tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this question coming out of that Genesis 3 story, what will you do with what you know? Hmm. That uh, for me, it is you know, nothing that's more difficult to answer than that question. And it has a thousand faces. And one of them is my responding to the woman, man, walking across the bridge in Charlottesville, Virginia yesterday thinking, oh, Jesus, you know, who are you? I don't know who you are, but I can just see you're walking you're a walking wounded person. And I hear you crying out to Jesus from a place of compassion and uh, identification, not a place of exclamation. Oh, I can't I mean to finally, I mean, we might exclaim, there are things to exclaim over, but I think if there's going to be a deeper, more persistent response born of the gospel, born of our imitation of Christ, it has to be more of, oh, Jesus, <laughs> you know, this is not the world you want it to be, is it really? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And she's whatever her confusions, his confusions are. Uh, man, you see them, you know them, and give me eyes to see what you see, please, I pray. Mm, I like that. Give me eyes to see the, and I mean, everybody has a mom or a dad or, I mean, the, a, a parental view of them. Yeah. And give me those eyes, Lord. Yeah. Well, and I hear you talk about the difference between chaos and uh, cosmos. and. My fear is, is that there are so many people who are living in chaos and they think they're going to, towards the changes or the transitions as a way to settle the chaos. And that's such a, a lie. And yet I don't know that they know anything about cosmos. Mm -hmm. Um and I just wonder as we, you know, if your coworker is encountering this or if, you know, very often you have children of coworkers who are making these kinds of choices. Um, I just think oftentimes Christians find themselves flat footed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
That's a very good description. And again, as I listen to you, I think it's very, very hard to think through these questions and know how to how to respond in a holy way to mm. them. In another generation, my father again was a research scientist for the University of California. So this is in some ways a million miles almost, or at least you know a few decades from our conversation here in the year 2023. But I remember him coming, I remember him telling me at one point about a longtime colleague of his who, you know, before we even had much public knowledge of gender dysphoria, you know, and and transgender questions and rights and obligations and how we we're going to respond, one of his colleagues began to bring, bring a purse to, to work, a, a man with, married with, with children. They began to wear a skirt to, to work, really. Oh, my. And, uh, um, and then, you know, we cut to the chase here, you know, because this was California, at one point made a decision to go up to Stanford University Medical School and have, a, have surgery, you know, to realign himself to his true identity. And, uh, um, you know, I, we cannot finally decide all things in life by anecdote. I don't believe that. Uh, but I would say that anecdotally, from what I can read and see at least, this is not an orienting decision. It's a disorienting decision. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, because there's a sorrowful skewing that comes from this and is going to be born with this. So rather than a cosmic and creational, you know, orientation, it becomes a cosmic and creational disorientation, not knowing who I am, nor why I am, nor what I'm to do with my life in the world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, recently I was with a pastor friend of mine who um, is counseling a couple of young guys, teenagers who are thinking they're wanting to transition and make these kinds of choices. And so I asked him, I said, what what would you want to tell lay people and the church about how we can be uh, engaged folks in a more meaningful and thoughtful way? How can we have a better response? And he really landed on this idea of curiosity. Um, wish that people, Christians and the church would be more curious. And I think part of curiosity is this idea of loving and being um, willing to listen uh, to one another. And so I just wondered if you could talk about this idea of curiosity and how you think that would help Christians really better integrate uh, their faith and work, both generally and specifically as companies or organizations are uh, trying to wrestle with these matters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. Um, I don't mean to be silly at all, Crossing, by this, but I, you know, thinking through what you were saying, I found myself almost immediately drawn to that adage that curiosity kills the cat. Kills the cat, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so, in some ways, I would say, even to play off that a little bit, um, maybe there's a holy curiosity, maybe there's a, you know, a, a not very holy curiosity. Maybe there's a sure. holy curiosity born of, you know, the heart of God. Which, you know, we know from the very first chapters of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God leads with questions. Um, mm. I one time actually counted all the questions in the book of Job, just for interest's sake. Oh, wow. you know? 
hey, Cargo on for scores and scores and scores. <laughs> Do you remember the number? I had, I had a number actually at a certain point that I've forgotten right now, but I mean, <laughs> like, it wasn't like five questions. It was like, they just go on for scores of questions, really. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, when Jesus, God incarnate, I mean, it isn't surprising really that his pedagogy largely is born of questions. You know, that he doesn't say, offer sermons on the mount, you know, at, at a certain moment along the way. Um, but it often is more like, so what, what, what is the law? What does the law teach? You know, um, and uh, it isn't that we don't have things to say sometimes. I have probably a whole page full of notes of things I could say to you right now about all this, really. Isn't that I've not thought about this, so we couldn't talk about it. I would have something to say to you about it. Mm. But I would say, mm. as a posture, you're right, Crestland. You know, the posture probably ought to be more godlike and realizing that, you know, maybe a, a discipline of my heart to say, what what a, a holy curiosity look like here mm -hmm. um and uh, um you know i i have i'm writing a book right now and uh been writing a, about a physician in the city of pittsburgh pennsylvania um whose practice is largely under the city's bridges pittsburgh has more bridges than any place else in america and uh his work is with street people who are schizophrenic mm very unusual population to choose to work yes. in. Yes, um, yeah. But we were, we were talking through what I was writing and what I wanted to understand about him. He was saying, well, you know, probably the first thing we do actually is we sit and listen to people um, and wanting in some ways to look them in the eye and have them be sure that when all is said and done, they know that we have listened to them carefully. We've taken them seriously. Uh, and I would say that, you know, wherever I go in the world, I'm pretty convinced they may be an exception or two or three to this, but most people, most places long to be taken seriously. Mm, yeah. 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 And heard, heard. And, and listened. And then even if you at the end of the day, well, I don't think that way. I cannot think that way. I, I, mm. I see this sure. in you. I mean, I think yeah. there's not anybody that I've typically met. I can make, maybe make a, you know, a few exceptions to this, but typically I think people are so surprised at somebody actually wanting to listen that it maybe is one of the best gifts we give to people. Which doesn't mean that we couldn't say at a certain point that cannot be because we don't live in a universe of chaos. It's a universe of cosmos. Um, and that has these, these, this meaning ontologically, philosophically, theologically, sociologically, sexually, you know, we can still say that, mm. but I do think that dispositionally, you know, Realizing, as we've already discussed here today, this business, can you really know the wounds of the world, the hurt of the world, the brokenness of the world, and still care about the hurt and the wounds and the brokenness of the world? For many of our listeners, this is a first chance to really think deeply. And that's why we're providing this, to help folks think deeply about this new reality. And we here, Cross and I have heard time and again, uh, wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. There's no easy answers. There's no black and white simple. How would you speak to a Christian who wants to deepen uh, wisdom yeah. and to grow in the wisdom of the Lord? Mm -hmm. Well, again, we could talk about this for hours, Case, but let me say a few things. Um, um, on the one hand, I'm pretty attentive to the, you know, the poets of our day. So, you know, whether it's this one, this one, this one, or that one, you know, I could pretty easily quickly go to, to Bob Dylan, you know, our poet laureate, you know, in America these days, who famously 
lament, lamented some years ago, everything is broken. Mm. So in some ways that has to do with the story or stories of which we are a part, the Alistair McIntyre argument. We can't know how we're to think about things, mm. what we're to do with our lives in the world unless we know what story or stories of which we are part. So, and that's more than just a recognition. It's a way you approach then everything. It is really. I mean, I think I mean, if I'm going to hold Bob Dylan out to you, I'm going to throw Francis Schaeffer into the conversation too. You know, I think one of his best gifts to me was in his book, True Spirituality. And uh, he makes the argument, which really I can still see where it is on the page because it so struck me at the time. Um, that in a fallen world, Dylan's terms, in a broken world, um, everyone is broken, everyone is fallen. So it's not possible to say, oh, too bad about that case Thorpe guy, you know, such a psychological <laughs> difficulty. He has psychological problems, doesn't he? Mm. You know? um, he says that kind of description or kind of, that kind of, oh, look at her, look at him. He says, well, we just can't do that if we actually believe that the story is of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. If that's the story, the meta, meta narrative, then in a fallen, wounded, broken world, Schaefer's argument was we're all broken, wounded, fallen people. Mm. So mm. it doesn't matter that some are and some aren't, that we all stumble over this. Mm -hmm. We all struggle with this. And to me, you know, in terms of your question about anthropology, I mean, to me, I am deeply Augustinian in anthropological terms case. So for me, it is deeply shaped by that creation, fall, redemption, consummation story. But if we are in this, you know, now but not yet time in history, um, then Schaefer's right about this. I mean, in a fallen, wounded, broken world, we all are, you know, and psychologically too. And I would say sexually too. You know, mm. sexually the, dis too. the disordered loves you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And the exactly Augustinian that, way of. That is profoundly how I think about things, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say that one would be something I would say wisdom. I mean, I would also say, you know, I don't think we do ourselves any favors at all. In fact, human beings as human beings will never know much more about who they are, are actually supposed to be as human beings without rooting ourselves as seriously as, as we possibly can in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Mm. Mm. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, it's not, to me, it's like lying in the sand, you know, thesis statement being set forth about what it means to be a human being in the world. And God made them male, he made, man, male and female, he created them, you know. And, you know, we can play with that. We can imagine whatever about that. We can imagine how parochial about that, you know. But I would say, you know, when we begin to disregard those Genesis 1 and 2 chapters and say, well, you know, maybe for you, not for me, really. I mean, I would just simply say, you know, that where you, what, what your beginning point, though, is a different place to begin this story, because what you, where you begin is wound and brokenness and hurt and sorrow. Uh, there's no, no, re no reference point to root ourselves in a deeper, longer story about, about life in the, under the sun. Mm -hmm. Maybe a third thing I would say would be the, an essay I used to give my students by Wendell Berry called Sex, Economy, Freedom, and Community. It's the title of a book of essays by him as well, but it's probably 40, 50 pages, so it's not a small, small little chapter. But he essentially is arguing that, you know, we have to begin to move from simply the language of sex to a conversation that embeds sexuality within other bigger, larger, or perplexing, important questions of 
economy, freedom, and community. Uh, and I thought, I've always thought that was sort of a, a really good word for the wise to begin to have to place the conversation about what does sexuality mean, which really is the conversation about gender and, you know, and who am I, uh, within a larger framework, which begins to force it to ask other questions about itself. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, the reality of that is so true because as you engage with people who are members of the LBGT community, um, I am just shocked at how much sex just that topic dominates everything. Mm -hmm. And then when you read stories like in Ryan Anderson's books and Preston Sprinkle's books and those kinds of things, the time and the energy that is given over to sexual orientation and it's just crazy. And it's not placed in a larger context. And it yeah. it makes me sad for their lives. Um, and it should, Crossland, and it should really, yeah. That disordering. Now, like you say, it's a four-chapter gospel. There is then the move to redemption and consummation. Absolutely. Healing, hope, options, absolutely, they have to be for us as Christ followers. Can you share how you've seen healing and hope in your journey that then can help us see that we can be a part of that for others and help be a part of Christ's work for, with others? Well, if you knew me better than you do, you'd know that, you know, before I get too far into any kind of place, I really am wanting to think seriously about something. I would say, well, there, this isn't a cheap question. There are no cheap answers, really. Um, so I don't think about this in that light. I don't think that, well, okay, you know, one, two, three, and then we'll get on and have a new day tomorrow. I don't think that way, you know, and I wouldn't want to respond that way. Um, but I, I would, that's in some ways why I wanted to begin with, you know, Alistair McIntyre's, you know, we cannot know who we, what we're to do without knowing the story or stories of which we are part. Mm. So in some ways, that would be like, if we can't somehow find any place of common ground on the world we actually live in, it's a hard place to know where to go, finally. Mm. You know, uh, um, which doesn't mean that we stop loving or stop being kind or we stop asking, being honestly, wholly asking and asking good questions. But, mm -hmm. um, but I would say that, you know, uh, when I use that language of the culture of whatever, it's overwhelming to us, you know, the whateverness of contemporary life and time, mm -hmm. contemporary culture. I mean, where do we go? On the political left or right, I mean, you can name names in Florida or other places, of course, in the world. I mean, there does not seem to be on either side a, a mooring in reality, mm. in the reality of what it means to be a human being and how we're going to live in a pluralizing society and world. And again, I, if I was going to press in, and I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable here, we could just press into contemporary Florida politics on this question, mm. you know, and... Uh, um, and it's, it's troubled on both left and right, as I watch it, actually, mm -hmm. from where I live. Uh, I'm sympathetic with this, sympathetic with that. You know, I feel tugged this way by that, those, that argument, this way by that arg this argument over here. You know? But for me, I mean, I'm, I, again, if I mentioned you know, Schaefer and Bob Dylan and you know, Ben O'Berry, you know, I'm a very deep student of, what, of Leslie Newbigin and uh, his 
you know, great questions about what does the gospel of the kingdom mean in a pluralizing society is in some ways backdrop to our whole conversation here today, uh, in, in my mind. Because um, we can never ever step away from in any foreseeable future that we live in a pluralizing society and world. Mm -hmm. You know. But I would press you though, but you're a man of hope. Clearly. <laughs> I do, and I'm not, I'm not wanting to deny that or to step away from that. I'm just saying to you, you know, that has to be taken seriously. And I, you know, my wife and I, you know, are honestly interested by our pocketbook in efforts that are trying to, you know, address these questions with holiness and with honesty and with hope and with grace and compassion. And, you know, so we, you know, month by month make decisions in our own little economy to say, you know, how can we be supportive of people who are trying to be the light, bring the light of the kingdom, the light of the gospel into this perplexing, you know, I I issue, really. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I don't mean to imply that, yeah. and I don't hear you thinking I'm saying this, I want our leaders, listeners to know, I don't mean to imply that we are charged with fixing people and um, making people our project, but I definitely think in the journey to wisdom, it's so helpful to not be overwhelmed, not to forget the hope and that anybody we may come into contact with um, has access to the same hope and healing and redemption that we certainly need for ourselves. And I've seen people forget that and then get I live my life for that panic case as you do. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. And I would say, I mean, if we wanted to press in to say, well, there's a resource here, there's a resource there. You've, all, you've actually talked to some good people already in this show, it sounds like, who probably had a lot to say to you about, well, that about this, and you could read this, and you could listen to this, and I have those things in my mind as well. So it isn't, I don't think they, those are, you know, beyond, beyond what we should talk about sometimes. Uh, I did want to say, you know, maybe before we have to call this all over to today, but, you know, for people who are interested in doing the deeper dive biblical reflections on these questions and the questions behind these questions. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say, you know, there's nobody better in my mind than Richard Hayes from Duke Divinity School and Edith Humphrey from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Okay. Hayes books right over there. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I mean, he took his, you know, heart in his, in his hands and made arguments within the Duke Divinity School world. And not finally, they were, not, they were not popular at all, actually. You know, but in some ways you can't, I mean, in my mind, again, this is with a broad brushstroke, but the unpopularity was more sociological and psychological than theological. Because uh, you can't, you cannot dispute Hayes's biblical reading of the New Testament teaching. Uh, in a different, in a similar way, you could not, you know, dispute Edith Humphrey's stellar scholarship, you know, looking at biblical teaching about sexuality questions. Mm -hmm. uh, you might say, well, we don't think that way at Pittsburgh Theological That's Center right. anymore. That's right. You know, we don't go there anymore. We don't believe in that really, you know. Um, but you couldn't go to the, you couldn't go to the text itself and say the text is whatever about this. Well, and I find my frustration comes with fellow theologians, pastors, Christians that let the text speak for itself and just say, I don't like it. I don't want to go there as opposed to uh, shoddy scholarship that attempts to drive an agenda. It's just so blatant and uh -huh. just, just being in some ways, it's, it's different, but it's not different in some ways than 
the community that's coming rallying around J.K. Rowling to come back where we started. I mean, these are like the, the best people in some ways in England weighing in on these questions. Um, and, uh, and, and you could say, well, I hate that. You know, I hate it. I don't want that. You can't say Not that out loud. You know, um, but in some ways, I mean, you, 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 you couldn't say that's disreputable either. You know, that that isn't this intellectually serious person. I mean, one of my father's great gifts to me as the man he was, was to say, well, I knew as an adolescent boy, getting to hear about a more complex universe from my schooling experiences, thinking, well, we're, how this all get started, really? You know, I'd come to my dad and say, what do you think, dad? You know, and what I began to understand was that I never had to choose between, you know, the idea that you could be smart and be a Christian at the same time. Mm. Or that you could be you could have a thoughtful, informed opinion That's right. about the nature of the universe. Uh, so for him, it was never like he saw himself as smarter than his colleagues who didn't believe that it was a created cosmos. He never ever said that to me. But I knew that it wasn't really finally a matter of who's smarter and who's not smarter. That's not the question, really. You know? um, because we see out of our hearts, to put it in the most biblical anthropological terms case, you know, we see out of our hearts. And so our hearts commit us to wanting to live in a certain way before we actually begin to, to work out what we think. Mm. That's Augustinian. It's very Augustinian, actually. <laughs> we see out of our hearts. Yeah. My goodness, Stephen, you are um, such a sage and such a blessing. Uh, before we go, anything else on your mind, heart, that your deep wells of thought and prayer would want to share? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, again, we have limited time, but one of the arguments I made to my to my students when I would teach sexuality for a month uh, was that when you look at the history of idolatry in the, in the world, just about always the first face of idolatry, which is always a twisting of the meaning of God's good gift, mm. is a sexual twisting. It's a sexual face to the idolatry. That's just historical and universal. Um, and you could ask about, so why on earth, good God that you are, why would the people of the promise, walking into the promised land, have to meet what? Asherah poles? Where? On the hills of the promised land? No, not Asherah poles, giant engorged penises. Please, not the promised land of all places, really. Sure. Or why would the Apostle Paul have to, you know, walking off into the boat of in, in, in Ephesus, you know, you can debate who Diana was and what she actually had, but some people say she had 60 breasts on her chest. Some people say, no, no, those were the testes of bulls, you know. Whatever they were, you know, I mean, I'm just saying, kind of, and probably more than you want me to say in this podcast, no. I mean, that idolatry always, 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 its first face is a twisting of the meaning of sexuality. And why is that? Because I would say that's so deep in us as human beings. Which is why, for me, with my students, I said, well, before we get to politics and economics and the arts and globalization, I'm going to push you here to think with me for a whole month about the nature and meaning of sexuality. Mm. If you can't believe that God is speaking truthfully about this, the rest will just be not really a conversation we're having seriously. Hence why 
I feel this is such an important topic to address yeah. because this is speaks so much more deeply to the nature of our culture and where things might be I headed. I agree with your case completely. Yeah. St. Stephen of Garber, thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate you being with us, and um, we very much appreciate it. It's good yeah, to be thank with you, you both. Thank you for the time to talk today with you both. So God bless you and what you do. Okay. Thank you. Crossland, I think it's obvious from our conversation, I am such a Stephen Garber fan. And his wisdom is in his um, lyrical way of, of conveying deep and beautiful truths. Uh, he talked about Augustinian anthropology, and that's a big term. But it basically is this idea that we have disordered loves. We have loves with inside of us inside of us, and they're out of order. They're going in the wrong direction. And redemption in Christ, restoration, orders those again. Not fully orders them in this lifetime. And so uh, as much as in the gender debate, I might see disorder in someone else's arguments or defenses for different perspectives, or even disorder in their own choices, uh, I've got that disorder in, my, in myself as well. And to me, that's where uh, uh, humility comes into play. And um, the hope to me is that Jesus is there to reorder, to reorder, to realign, to, re to, make, renew, to make new and right again. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into that from this conversation and how I can be a part of his renewal and hope for, for others. There is so much to lean into <laughs> from this conversation. Yeah. He has some great quotes and phrases, and I would encourage people to go back and listen to it again. We um, should have done two episodes. I know. The one thing that, uh, one of the things that kind of um, really stuck out for me was this idea of uh, the disposition of our hearts, which brings in this idea of humility, which you just mentioned, or Holy curiosity, as we talked about, um, you know, being born out of a heart of God. A God always leads with questions. You see that a lot in the Old Testament. Um, and in order for us to rightly position our hearts, um, that's the way we can then engage folks for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel. Um, because and that's work that we have to do. Yes. 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 That, that's the, when you say rightly position our hearts. Okay. I think prayer time, scripture reading, worship, um, living a life of walking with Christ. Cause then when I'm presented with very difficult moral choices or folks very different from myself, I'm, I'm prepped. I'm ready. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point because you know, when that I had a waiter wait on me a couple of weeks ago and I had a horrible attitude. He was clearly transitioning and I had had a bad day and I was impatient and just irritated at the choices he was making. Well, mm. let me tell you, I needed to do heart work mm -hmm. um, and you don't do heart work in the moment. Mm. It's something that you, you know, you be a good Girl Scout, you prepare yourself uh, for it. And sometimes people, non-Christians, even Christians think, oh, prayer, Bible study, worship, those are things that. I got to do to get into heaven, which we know isn't true. Or they think, oh, they're burdensome and old school. No, no. <laughs> it's 
it's you're eating vegetables, you're working out, you're getting ready for then living missionally. Yes. And, you know, it may be what we are praying about and what we are thinking about and that we need to make a shift there so that you pray that God would prepare me when I encounter things, that I would always be ready to give a reason um, for the things that I mm-hmm. believe in, for the gospel. Mm-hmm. So lots to take away from for this lots. episode. St. Stephen of Garber. <laughs> I encourage everybody, go read Warm Brown Sugar. Go read <laughs> That Visions is not of the vocation. title of the that book. Is not. <laughs> it is Visions of Vocation. But, or come to Cotham Fellowship and we'll read it together. It's interesting to me how we are in our autobiographical stories, as Stephen said, caught up in the greater cosmic story of creation, fall, redemption. He says consummation. I like to use the word restoration. There's both validity in those. This creation sense of God at work in Genesis 1 and 2. The fall that occurs in Genesis 3 as brokenness forever mars and damages humanity, creation. But then that work of the Lord that begins in Genesis 3.15, and the promise, the foreshadowing of Jesus to come, the work of redemption God lays out through the covenants, the law, the prophets, the journey of our covenant ancestors into the promised land, the work of Christ, the turning point of history, and the work of the Holy Spirit as the church is born and even to us today. Eventually, one day, Christ will return and restore all things, consume all things into himself, and we will be in glory with him. But until such time, this era of redemption in which is one in which we are co-laboring with God. Hence the name collaborative. We are arm in arm with him as he has invited us to be. He's also humbled himself to ask for our co-laboring and together helping to see his mission of redemption and restoration unfold. So I take away from this that I am not to have to have all the answers. I don't have to confront all the um, disorder that's out there or around me. But through the tools of Christ, which are love and humility and the fruit of the Spirit for sure, I am able to be His emissary and to represent Him well and see Him do the greater work and call me in the moment to do whatever work He would have me to do. One of my takeaways for today. How beautiful. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Help us spread the word about nuance. Please like the episode, subscribe to our podcast, and share our link so others can engage. Nuance is a production of The Collaborative and is made possible by the Eleanor and T.W. Miller Foundation. On behalf of Case Thorpe and myself, thank you for joining the conversation.